as we continue our time, let's go before the Lord with a time of prayer. Father, as we come before you this morning to study your word and to hear the refrain of the psalmist, Lord, our Lord, how majestic is your name in all the earth. He's proclaiming the truthfulness of your majesty. Yet, Father, at the same time, I'm sure he, just as we are slow at proclaiming that majesty, Father, our setting, our emotions, our thoughts, our devotion can be so easily swayed from who you are and what you've done by setting a plan in motion to send your son to redeem a people to make a new creation for those who trust in him. So, Father, we come before you acknowledging that we so often proclaim a message totally different than your majesty. So, Father, help us by your Spirit to join in the song of the psalmist, Lord, our Lord, how majestic is your name in all the earth. And even in this time as we hear your word preached, we pray that our hearts would be captivated by the majesty of our Creator and Savior. And Father, that this song would well up in us to the degree that when we sing again, our hearts and our spirits sing that single song. Lord, our Lord, how majestic is your name in all the earth. Father, we know that this is true. We know that you are majestic. Your name is majestic in the earth that you created. And Father, as you have created, you also sustain. So Father, we come before you now on behalf of Tony, the pastor at Ballardsville Baptist Church, and Father, for his family, that you would comfort them in the midst of his treatment, in the midst of him being in the hospital, in the midst of him being on a ventilator. Father, we pray that just as you created and breathed breath into the lungs of Adam, Father, we ask that you would heal Tony. Father, we pray that you would give the doctors wisdom to navigate this virus and the treatment of it in a way that would heal him. And Father, that miraculously you would heal him. Uh, that there would be no earthly reason other than to say it was a miracle that God did it. So Father, we lift up Tony. Father, we rejoice that he is a minister of the gospel and that he's trusted this gospel Father, I pray that for him now and for his family and for his church, this would be such a reminder of our clinging to the one thing that saves us. And that is Jesus Christ and this good news that he brings, that redemption can be found in him and him alone. So, Father, we pray that through his treatments, 
And Father, through this whole scenario, you would bring many to trust in you and you alone. Father, we also lift up Lakewood Baptist Church and their pastor, Jeremy Jessen, to you. Father, we pray that you would continue to raise him up to be faithful, to preach the word with such clarity and faithfulness to the text. Father, that it would bring you great joy when he gets behind the pulpit. Father, we pray for he and his family, that you would strengthen them as he continues to shepherd the flock there at Lakewood. Father, we pray that the sweet blessing that the writer of Hebrews says would be true at Lakewood. That his church would willingly and joyfully submit to the leadership of Jeremy and the other pastors. And Father, that it would benefit them. That they would be better for it. And Father, we pray just as we did last week for the Milton's. And Father, we also think of many missionaries through the International Mission Board of the Southern Baptist Convention. We pray that you would give them the resources, that you would give them the desire, that you would give them the strength to continue to proclaim this good news of salvation in Christ and Him alone to the nations that they are a part of. And Father, we pray that you would find us faithful to the task that you have entrusted us with. Father, we are not exempt from the Great Commission that we would take the gospel to all nations. So, Father, we ask that you would give us clarity on how we ought to do that. Father, that you would, even in our midst, raise up those who would be sent overseas to serve as missionaries, that they would take and proclaim the gospel to a people far from you. Father, we pray that you would do these things. Father, we know that it's only by your Spirit. So we ask that he would move mightily in our midst today during this time of preaching and beyond, that we would be so utterly different that the only thing we could say just as the day of Pentecost, something's not right with these folks. Father, that we would be so zealous for your name to go out on all the earth. Father, we thank you that you've entrusted us with this task. May we be found faithful during this time of preaching. That if there were anything that, were, that is said that is untrue, that it would be quickly forgotten. And Father, that your spirit would embolden me to say just as you would have. And that we would grow in a knowledge and love and devotion to you through your word. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Psalm chapter 8. Psalm chapter 8. As I mentioned, if you were a young kid growing up in church, the way that you found the Psalms is your Sunday school teacher, rather than say, oh, it's between this and that, they just say, just just find the middle part of your Bible and, and open it up. For the most part, you're going to land on Psalms. But Psalm chapter 8, as I was studying in Psalm chapter 8, one of the things that first drew me to this psalm out of this first book in the Psalter uh, was 
an experience that I had in reflecting on Psalm chapter 8. When I was a young 20-something-year-old serving in my first ministry position, uh, the youth pastor that I was serving under came up to me in the middle of a Wednesday night service, and he just kind of bumped me. And I hope at some point he'd watch and listen. Uh, He's... I owe a lot to him, but he bumped me in the midst of this service going on, and he said, hey, how would you like to go to Alaska? Annie and I were dating, might have been engaged, but there was nothing keeping me from saying, heck yeah, I want to go to Alaska. And then he bumped me again and said, and what about New York? (laughs) Again, young 20-year-old in the middle of a summer, I was like, yeah. And then my immediate thought was, how am I going to pay for this? And it was just at that moment that he said, oh, and the church is, we're going we're gonna to send you. <laughs> okay. Fast forward a couple months, I'm in a boat just off of Kotzebue, a, a small uh, village town there in the Arctic Circle of Alaska, uh, heading up a two-hour boat ride to get to our campsite. So this part of Alaska that I was heading towards was not the Alaska that I was really envisioning. I thought, snow-filled cabin, you know, with nice amenities inside. No. We literally one night had a black bear come down over the ridge, and everybody got out their guns. And you're like, all right, this is the Alaska we're in, you know? It was great. But on this boat ride, this Oklahoma boy that wasn't used to any kind of mountains finds himself looking at these peaks on both sides of the river with eagles and different caribou swimming across the river, things I'd never seen before. These snow-capped mountains in the distance, and we're tucked in this valley with the river going between it where you've just got stone walls on each side that are just beautiful. I immediately thought, I'm moving to Alaska. <laughs> this, is, this is God's country. Oklahoma's got nothing. This is God's country. Until Annie said, we're not moving to Alaska. What are you talking about? But as I found myself on this boat ride up to our campsite, just sitting in wonder and awe of what God had made, I immediately shifted view from all of the things that I could see to myself. And Psalm chapter 8 came to mind that as I look and I see all that God's created, this incredible habitat that he's made, I was reminded that who is man? Who am I that you are mindful of me? That he sent his son for me, the creation is great. Creation is splendor. As the psalmist will go on in Psalm, I believe, chapter 19, and start to say that day after day, God's creation pours forth speech. That if we, in Psalm 8, don't proclaim how majestic is your name in all the earth, the creation will do it for us. The creation does do it for us. But we are God's special creation. Because he doesn't say that the world is made in his image. What does Genesis 1.26 say? It says that we, let us make man in his image. 
that we get to be the pinnacle of God's creation. And so as I thought about this short series in Psalms, just doing an overview on one book in each of the five books of the Psalter, I immediately turned, it's got to be Psalm 8. And then as I started to read Psalm chapter 1, I was like, well, maybe it should be Psalm 1. I was like, well, I'll just keep reading. Maybe it should be Psalm 2. Maybe it should be Psalm 3. I just thought, guys, we're looking at like a six-year series in the book of Psalms. But I look forward to opening up Psalm chapter 8 with us and seeing all of the glories and riches that the Lord would have us learn. So let's suspend a long introduction and stand in reading of the honor of God's word from Psalm chapter 8. Psalm chapter 8. For the choir director on Gittith, a psalm of David. Lord, our Lord, how magnificent is your name throughout the earth. You have covered the heavens with your majesty. From the mouths of infants and nursing babies, you have established a stronghold on account of your adversaries in order to silence the enemy and the avenger. When I observe your heavens, the work of your fingers, the moon and the stars which you set in place, what is a human being that you remember him? A son of man that you look after him. You made him little less than God and crowned him with glory and honor. You made him ruler over the works of your hands. You put everything under his feet, all the sheep and oxen, as well as the animals in the wild, the birds of the sky and the fish of the sea that pass through the currents of the seas. Lord, our Lord, how magnificent is your name throughout the earth. May the Lord receive honor in the reading of his word. You may be seated. Now, I've mentioned a couple times uh, a phrase by the name of uh, the Psalter. Uh, If you're unfamiliar with that term, that is the main book of the Psalms. That these five books that make up the Psalter uh, are a hymn book. They are uh, to be songs, so to speak. Uh, But lest we think that they're just that simple, that we should sing these things, though we should, there's more to the Psalms. Even as I studied uh, this week and this weekend, I thought to myself, this is too much. Zechariah seems like, you know, really difficult and that you can't get much more difficult. But as we as believers, open up God's word to things that, I'll be honest, I've not really studied the Psalms in depth. I talked with Annie and I said, there weren't really any seminary classes that I uh, got an introduction to the Psalms specifically. One that I did get to sit under uh, because of my my work uh, has been one that has been extremely helpful. Uh, by a name, the professor is a pastor in Louisville uh, by the name of Jim Hamilton. Uh, he's been an extreme resource to me. So if there are things that you find out, wow, Sean like quoted verbatim, I will try and make sure that I attribute it to him uh, verbally. But I have been helped tremendously in my study of the Psalms uh, by Dr. Hamilton. A couple of things uh, about the Psalms. Not only is it named uh, the Psalter for its larger uh, kind of 
culmination. It's, it's five books. Those five books are pretty relatively known, uh, pretty relatively uh, thought of. But one thing to say, those five books are really segmented and, and kind of encapsulated uh, after the, the compiling of Psalms. So when I say that there are five books of the Psalms, it's not that there legitimately are five books of the Psalms. It seems as though it was compiled in five books. But just as our numbers of chapter and verse are not scripture, those were added in after the fact, uh, we, can, we can glean from some of the breakdowns in this. Here's a couple things that some theologians have said about the Psalms, because many times we can think of the Psalms as either a devotional book, something that we uh, do a read through of the Psalms in in bite sized chunks for devotional. We think about it, we meditate on it, and then we go about our day. But here is what one theologian a couple hundred years ago said. He says, the fact that this book, speaking of the Psalms, is highly devotional and experimental takes nothing from the difficulty. For the nearer we are to the throne, the more dazzling it is found to be. And the more deeply truth enters into our spirits, the less able do we feel ourselves to tell its relations and describe its beauties. That the Psalms will illuminate us and that our response to the Psalms and to all of Scripture really is for us to join in the song of the Psalms with our hearts. And the only way that we can do that is if we have a new heart. That if we were to read the Psalms and say, oh, this is great, this is awesome, and then go about our day, its purpose has not been found. But if we have been found in Christ, if we've trusted in Him, we've been made new. Our hearts are now new. We sing a different song. We don't now sing, Sean is Lord, how majestic is Sean's name, and all the earth. Though I'll be real honest, there are days where I want to sing that song. But that song is ridiculous. And that song is a complete lie from the pit of hell. But that is the song that we have to hit stop on, or else that is the song that we will sing. But the song that the psalmist David tells us to sing is, O Lord, our Lord, how magnificent is your name. Not our name. And this Hebrew word for Lord is, is the divine name. God's personal name, which he revealed himself to Moses. This is Yahweh. So David is saying, Yahweh, our God, how magnificent is your name throughout the earth. You have covered the heavens with your majesty. Right? David, David is looking at creation and seeing how incredible God's creation is. Verse 2, from the mouths of infants and nursing babies, you have established a stronghold on account of your adversaries in order to silence the enemy and the avenger. This is where it's so important to know the context that a specific text is coming from. Psalm chapter 8 means that there were seven songs preceding it. And it means that there are 142 that 
finish it off. But not only does it find itself in Psalms, it finds itself in a historical context of what has been going on in David's life. So a couple clues to let us see what is going on here. In the superscription, any of you have that at the top? You've got verse 8. Then you've got the the subheading that was added. Uh, For mine, it says God's glory, human dignity. But under that, you have a little, little, little kind of tiny text. And this was actually text found in the Hebrew scriptures. It says, for the choir director, on Gitteth, a psalm of David. There's not a ton to, to, to just kind of dwell on from Giddeth, but Giddeth, the, the root word of Giddeth is Gath. You're like, all right, Sean, where the heck are you going? Gath is a Philistine city. Gath happened to be where Goliath was from. So when we look at verse 2, that from the mouths of infants and babies, you have established a stronghold on account of your adversaries in order to silence the enemy and the avenger. So we look at this psalm and we say, wow, what a devotional, incredible message. Oh Lord, our Lord, how majestic is your name? And on the surface, yes, we could just glean that amount of wisdom. But when we look at it down deep, what are we seeing here? We're seeing this fulfillment that the victory, the stronghold against the adversaries to bring victory is, in fact, a promise from the beginning of Scripture. Genesis 3.15. You've probably heard this narrative, this timeline, for the last at least month. The deceit of the woman, Genesis 3.15, will come and will Crush the serpent's head, and the serpent's head will bruise the heel. We just celebrated the incarnation. The promise fulfilled that Jesus, the seed of the woman, is coming to crush the serpent's head. So from the mouths of infants and nursing babies, you've established a stronghold on account of your adversaries. I saw a quote yesterday reflecting on the incarnation God did not need to send his chariots of armor and his swordsmen and those yielding bows. No, all he needed to take down his enemy was a little baby. What a sweet, sweet thing. God has always been saving his people from the unlikeliest means. And David is but an incredible representation of that. David can't even fit Saul's armor. Goes out and he says, this this Philistine is mocking our God, the God of creation. I cannot, we cannot, what are you, where are you guys? What are you doing? Can't wield his sword. He can't put his armor on. David goes and he slays Goliath, the most unlikely means, little David, the most unlikely means to save a people from their sin, a baby born in a manger, then is crucified on a tree. The promises are over. But no, 
Because you, God, you, Yahweh, have established a stronghold to silence the enemy and the avenger. Because of what Christ has done, the enemy is silent. The game is over, and now we have to hold on to the promised hope that Jesus once again will come to slay, finally and forever, Satan and all of his tormentors. What do we see in Corinthians? That the last enemy to fall will be death itself. The stronghold is Jesus, and it is glorious. And he moves, verse 3, to talk about the creation. He's moved from the mouths of infants and nursing babies, and now he says, verse 3, when I observe the heavens, the work of your fingers, the moon and the stars which you set in place, what is a human being that you remember him? A son of man that you look after him. And he answers the question, you made him little less than God and crowned him with glory and honor. You made him, verse six, ruler over the works of your hands. You put everything under his feet, all the sheep and oxen, as well as the animals of the wild, the birds of the sky and the fish of the sea that pass through the currents. David is seeing this magnificent view of the God who created everything. And he says, who am I that you have placed on me? Your image. You have given me dominion. Who am I? Now, not much background needs to be shared, but David was not the promised Messiah. The short narrative of David and Bathsheba tells us very vividly that David was not the sinless Messiah. Yet we see in Genesis 1.26 that God has made us in his image. Every single one of us in this room is made in the image of God. And what did that mean for Adam and Eve? It meant that they were given the authority. They were, for a sense, given the keys to the Ferrari of God's creation. If you don't like Ferraris, just imagine your favorite car, and that's what creation is. A Chevy diesel, right? God gives Adam and Eve dominion of all that he made. In verse 6 and 7 and 8, Paul or, or David is giving a recounting of the created order, that God gives the authority of these things to his creation in Adam and Eve. But he does so in backwards order. Then God said, let us make man in his image, in our image, according to our likeness. They will rule the fish of the sea, the birds of the sky, the livestock, the whole earth, and the creatures that crawl on the earth. You see, we see that God's creatures, God's image bearers, do not image him rightly. When God gave them the task to Eat of every seed of every tree, yet this one. They break 
the commandment. They sin. They don't image God correctly and they're banished from His good creation. So again, David asks, what is a human being that you remember Him? A son of man that you look after Him. You made Him a little less than God and crowned Him with glory and honor. I think this simple and single doctrine known as the Imago Dei, God uh, being made in the image of God, I think is one of the most neglected doctrines of our day. With the way that we talk about people, with the way that we think about people, with the way that we get on social media, It wasn't that long ago in the state of Kentucky and even in the United States, even in the Southern Baptist Church, where there were some who were seen as being less than human, less than being image bearers of God. Some who hold the same Bible that we hold, yet made loopholes for this. There is no loophole, church, for who is and who isn't made in the image of God. If you are human, even even just being human means that we, in our physical and uh, psychological, all of our makeup, we are image bearers of God. And therefore, bestow dignity. Listen to how David says, you made him little less than God and crowned him with glory and honor. Yet our first parents, Adam and Eve, traded in that crown, traded in that glory, traded in that honor through their sin of taking the fruit from being indwelt or being, being persuaded by the serpent. The crown was given away. But you see, thankfully, that's not where the story ends because a son of man has come. Jesus Christ, son of man and son of God, to reclaim that dominion where Adam and Eve gave it away. God himself in Christ comes and establishes a kingdom. He establishes a stronghold. So where do we run? The psalmist says later, where do I look? Where do my eyes turn? I look to the hills. I look to the Lord, the maker of heaven and earth. We look to Christ, the one who is the source and perfecter of our faith, who blamelessly took the cross that was meant for sin and sinners to be punished. He took our punishment. He took our sin. And the sinless Son of God died on our behalf. What an incredible truth. Now, a couple weeks ago, we looked at Matthew chapter 1, the genealogy of Jesus Christ. And we see that in the timeline... 
David never got to meet Jesus in a physical sense. Though David seemed to be extremely akin to what Jesus would do, what the Messiah would do. He says, Lord, (laughs) the Lord says to my Lord, sit on your throne until your enemies are made a footstool. He's talking about this Messiah. So though this psalm does not directly link to Jesus in one sense, in its historical context, we see that Jesus and others in the New Testament cite this verse multiple ways. First, we see Matthew 21, verse 16. Jesus is in the temple, and he's drawing quite a crowd. And the children around him are literally saying, Hosanna to the son of David. Where will this come from? From the mouths of babes, of infants and nursing babes. These children in Matthew 21 at Jesus' presence are ascribing to him Son of David, Hosanna. And at this, the religious leaders are indignant. Jesus' kingdom comes forth and there is opposition. But the opposition will not hold. Because he is a stronghold. Not only is he perfect in every way, but his work is perfect. And it cannot be undone. Not even by your own sinfulness. Not even by your own sinfulness. One of my favorite preachers by the name of John MacArthur said that if you can sin and lose your salvation, you would. And I would say amen to that, Pastor John. That if I could sin and lose my salvation, I would. But the beautiful doctrines of Scripture teach us that those who trust in Christ will be held forever. That's why Paul in Romans says, can anything keep us from the love of God? And he runs down a list and he says, no, nothing. Not heights, not depths. Because he is a stronghold. He is perfect and his work is perfect. Another New Testament writer in Hebrews chapter 2, the writer of Hebrews quotes verse 5. And again, talking about humanity. For he, Hebrews 2 verse 5, for he has not subjected to angels the world to come that we are talking about. But someone somewhere has testified, what is man that you remember him? Or the son of man that you care for him. You made him lower than the angels for a short time. You crowned him with glory and honor and subjected everything under his feet. For in subjecting everything to him, he left nothing that is not subject to him. As it is, we do not yet see everything subjected to him. Verse 9, but we do see Jesus made lower than the angels for a short time, so that by God's grace, he might taste death for everyone, crowned with glory and honor because he suffered death. This psalm is attributed to Jesus in Matthew and in Hebrews. But again, in 1 Corinthians 15, the Apostle Paul says it this way. 
1 Corinthians 15, verse 27. For God has put everything under His feet. Quoting in verse 6. He has done all of these things in Jesus. He has subjected Christ. Christ humbled Himself by taking on the form of man. He didn't think to be God as something to be grasped, but rather he humbled himself. And ultimately he died on the cross. That through his perfect life and work, he brings the crown back. He's established a stronghold on account of your adversaries in order to silence the enemy and the avenger. So we see both through creation, we see through the work that Christ has done, ultimately bringing forth a new creation. Revelation says that the old creation will pass away. It will be burnt up. But a new creation has come. We look to God's glory in creation, and we ultimately look forward to the new creation that Jesus will culminate. And in both of those works, we must ascribe the same thing that David does in the psalm. Lord, our Lord, how magnificent is your name through all the earth. Two ways just that we see at surface level. First, that God created. That God created I joked that Oklahoma is kind of a a pit of a place to live. I love Oklahoma. There's much to like about Oklahoma. But let's just think about all of the places, all of the different uh, environments on earth. Sure, you live there and and you're like, Arizona heat, I don't want that. Southern uh, hemisphere Smog and, and humidity. I don't like that. Kentucky winter. I don't know. It's a little too cold. I don't like that. And then the summer comes. And you're like, it could be a little colder. <laughs> we often take for granted what God has created, but yet we look at these magnificent pictures. We look at these magnificent painting, paintings, all encapsulating God's creation that was thought of. It was perfectly planned by a perfect creator. So we give him glory for his creation on this physical earth. And secondly, we give him glory because he has bestowed on us his image. That we now, as believers who've trusted in the Lord Jesus Christ, with the unique image-bearing capacities any person has, You don't have to be a believer in Christ to be given this dignity of being made in the image of God. Everyone has that. That's why we fight for life. That's why we seek to end this radical abortion movement. We seek to do these things because all humanity is made in the image of God. So we praise him for his creation of earth, but we praise him for his pinnacle of creation of mankind. Now let us not think, wow, we are great. Because how does David encapsulate this psalm? Not with, oh man, oh man, how majestic are we in all the earth. No. 
He sees the bigness of the creator God who bestows on his creations his image. He doesn't say, wow, look at me. But rather he says, wow, look at God for what he's made in this earth and what he's made in me and how much more for us who have been made new creations in Christ. That we look and say, wow, I'm great. But rather that we would say, you have looked on me with such favor that you have sent your son to restore the broken capacities of imaging God and I am now a new creation. Let us go singing that song of Lord, our Lord, how majestic is your name in all the earth. Let a single hint of swagger not be found in our lives. That we would see with all humility what God has done in creating us and then in Christ making us a new creation. Oh Lord, our Lord, how majestic is your name throughout the earth. Let's pray. Father, may we sing this song from the housetops and the roofs that in our lives we would proclaim, Oh Lord, our Lord, how magnificent is your name in all the earth. Father, let us long for that. That not just our friends and not just our families and not just our neighbors would be made new in Christ, but that all the earth would come to know him. Father, may we be those who obey the task. And it's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.